Thank you, Tom. Morning, folks. Good to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 4. Our uh, chapter on Jesus' parables continues. It doesn't say explicitly, but uh, Bible scholars assume that Jesus is back on the seaside of the Sea of Galilee, uh, teaching to a crowd. Uh, Mark chapter 4, uh, verse 21 through 34. Uh, let me read our passage today as we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of God. Let's uh, ask for his help as we look into these parables this morning that uh, we too need to have explained to us to understand their meaning. Uh, pray with me, if you would. So Father, we do come now in the name of Christ, and we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to see and hear the truth of your word. God, we pray that we would hear your voice voice speaking today through your word and not mine. Uh, I pray that you would uh, quicken me with your spirit and give me grace to proclaim your truth. And Lord, give us grace to hear and put into practice uh, the truth of your word as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading you a little piece called The Blind Man and the Elephant. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me tis mighty clear 
this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approach to the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact. Who can? This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often theologic wars the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. Doesn't that touch you deep inside? <laughs> Something similar to this happens uh, when we try to describe the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, it's uh, referred to by a different name altogether, the kingdom of heaven. Yet by comparing the two, it becomes obvious that they refer to the, the same thing. Uh, some believe the kingdom of God is entirely in the future because as you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, we often say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Some believe, uh, yet, yet, Contrary to that, uh, your kingdom come, at the very beginning of his public ministry, you might remember that Jesus announced the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And in Luke, Jesus told the Pharisees, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So there are these conflicting views. And like this like the blind men with the elephant describing the kingdom of God can be uh, difficult. What is the kingdom of God? I dare say when you rolled out of bed today, it wasn't the first thing that popped through your mind. Uh, but with help from Dr. R.C. Sproul, I define it like this. The kingdom of God is his absolute rule over creation through his anointed king, Jesus Christ, inaugurated at his first coming and consummated at his second. Let me read that again. The kingdom of God is his absolute rule over creation through his anointed king, Jesus Christ, inaugurated at his first coming and consummated at his second. The kingdom of God was initiated when Christ first came and will be perfected at his glorious return. At his first coming, Christ institute, instituted the invisible form of the kingdom. When he returns, it will become visible to everyone. We're still left with a lot to explain, though. The, this basically describes the initiation and the consummation of God's kingdom. But we're still left with the whole middle of the elephant to describe. 
What does that look like? What, how does the kingdom of God appear to you and me right now? Uh, this is what we want to find out today. Uh, and why should you care? It's because of this verse in Matthew 6, 33 that you have heard. Uh, if you've heard it once, you've heard it a million times probably. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And here's why you should care about this question. is because you are charged to pursue it above everything else. Seek first his kingdom. And through three parables in our passage today, Jesus gives us three characteristics of God's kingdom. There are three characteristics of God's kingdom in our passage today. The first that we encounter is the ultimate unveiling of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God will not remain hidden. One day it will be fully revealed. I want to say three things about this unveiling. The first thing we see here is the light. Verse 21 says, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? The lamp that Jesus referred to probably looked something like this. Uh, lamps were pieces of pottery, and you'll see there at the, the one end, if I could get out of the way, uh, that it's pinched together. Sometimes they were pinched together on both sides. Uh, sometimes they had multiple points around it. This is where the wick came out. Uh, oil was placed in here, and that wick coming out here, soaked in the oil, would uh, burn for however long the wick lasted. This is because it looks like a slipper. It's called a slipper lamp. Is that too fast? Something like this. Um, no one would light the lamp and then put a basket over it. About a two-gallon basket, Jesus refers to, or, or slide it under a bed. It was meant to give off life. And most versions translate verse 21, like the ESV does, is a lamp brought in. But more literally, it says, is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Or you could even say the lamp does not come to be put under a basket. Because in the original language, the word lamp has a definite article. And by that, we mean the word the. So Jesus isn't referring to just any lamp here. He's referring to a specific lamp. Probably himself. He, God is often referred to as a light in the Old Testament. Psalm 27 begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 66, 20 says, For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the light. In John 1, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So this lamp that Jesus introduces us to in verse 21 is likely himself. Then we, we move on, we see a second thing here. Not only do we see the light, we see the unveiling. Through this parable, Jesus is telling us that the light of the world did not come into the world to remain hidden. We've seen him uh, suppress his identity, uh, 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 encourage people not to tell anyone. Uh, but just as no one lights a lamp to put it under a bed, as God's anointed king, he will not remain hidden. And God's kingdom that comes through him will not remain hidden, but will ultimately be revealed to everyone. This is what verse 22 tells us. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest or made obvious or made evident, nor is anything secret except to come to light. How does this unveiling take place that he's talking about here? Well, in the New Testament, it took place through the preaching of Jesus and through the preaching of the apostles in the early church. In our day, the kingdom of God is still being unveiled through his church as you and I proclaim Christ as king and proclaim our king's payment for sins on the cross, the kingdom continues to be revealed uh, to the world around us. In fact, Matthew, using this parable but applying it slightly in, in a different way than Mark, says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Dr. R.C. Sproul comments here, it is the duty of the church in every generation, of every pastor, and of every Christian to take up that lamp cast the basket aside and put the light in a prominent place where people can behold the truth of God and his son. In our day, the kingdom of God is being revealed through his church. Maybe at this point we should stop and pause and sing this little light of mine. If you learned that as a child or whatever. I always thought hide it. I always thought it said hide it under a bush. Oh no! But it, apparently, I had had it wrong, and it's actually a bushel. Uh, hide it under a bushel. No. Uh, ultimately, though, the kingdom of God will be finally and fully revealed on the day that Jesus returns in glory. Uh, Jesus Himself says in Revelation chapter one, "Behold, He is coming with the clouds." And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Matthew 24 says everyone will see it. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So ultimately the kingdom of God will be finally and fully unveiled on the day that Jesus returns in glory. We see, second, the unveiling 
of the kingdom. Jesus, the light of the world and his kingdom, will not remain hidden, but will be revealed and fully and finally revealed at the second coming. And then third, I want you to notice uh, the responsibility connected with this. Uh, those who understand the parables are responsible to listen carefully and then practice the truth in them. Look at verse 24 with me. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The word of God and the truth about God's kingdom comes with responsibility. Believers are answerable for what they hear and how they put it into practice. Uh, one Bible scholar comments, to those who learn and then pass on to others what they have learned, more will be given. So what this tells us is that you and I have a responsibility to continually unveil the gospel of the kingdom to the people that God puts in our lives. This good news that Christ our King paid for sin through his death on the cross and that by trusting in his atoning death our sin will be forgiven and our lives will be made new. Is that something you're aware of? Can I broach the subject that you and I have a responsibility to make this kingdom known? That it's something we're called to seek first? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, we're reminded of this thirdly here in this first parable. And this is the first characteristic of the kingdom, uh, its ultimate uh, unveiling. The kingdom of God and its king, Christ, will not remain hidden, but will ultimately be unveiled through our witness and then through his glorious return uh, on the last day. Well, there's a second characteristic that Jesus describes in the next parable. And the second characteristic of God's kingdom is its gradual growth. God's kingdom will continue to grow until the day of the final harvest. And again, I want to point out three things uh, here in this characteristic. First is the seed. If you'll notice verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is, a, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. This parable of the seed uh, today reminds us of the parable of the sower that we studied two weeks ago, as it was in the first parable, which occurs in the first half of this chapter, uh, verses 1 through 20. The seed again refers to the word of God being sown in people's hearts, the announcement of the king and the good news of the kingdom. And because Jesus goes on to say that this seed bears fruit, he must be talking about seed sown on good soil, about the word being planted and taking root in a receptive heart. So first of all, we, we encounter the seed in this next parable. And then secondly, we see the growth of this seed. The seed uh, mysteriously uh, 
the seed mysteriously grows and without human effort. Let me see where I am here. Okay, where is my next point? Uh, the seed is he's talking about, of course, is uh, uh, the mustard seed. And he said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now, this slide is in the wrong place. Forgive me. Uh, we, we see next the growth of the seed. Sorry about that. The growth of the seed is described in verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Once the seed is sown on good soil, the farmer can do nothing to force growth. Think about this, you that plant your own gardens. Uh, you know, aside from watering the plants, pulling weeds, maybe you'll put up a scarecrow, pray for rain. You can't force the seed to grow. You can't get down there in the dirt with a little toothpick and a tiny pair of pliers and, and force it to pop open and well, you could force it to pop open. You destroy it. You, you can't force a seed to grow. All you can do is produce an environment that encourages the seed to grow. And here in verse 28, Jesus goes on to say the earth produces by itself. Uh, the word by itself, automate, from which we get the word automatic. And it indicates that something happens without visible cause or without external control. We can't control the growth of this kingdom. It is out of our hands. So all we can do is encourage an environment of growth, but we cannot make the kingdom grow. And so one man explains it like this. The man who's the beneficiary of the seed's growth contributes nothing towards it beyond the initial sowing of the seed and the eventual harvesting. In between, he has nothing to do but wait. The first there may be little to show for the sowing of the seed, and a skeptical observer might think nothing was happening, but there is an inner dynamic in that message which will in due time produce its effect, even if human insight cannot fathom how the process works. In the meantime, the wise disciple will wait in confidence for God's work to be accomplished in God's way. The kingdom of God then does not depend on human effort to achieve it, and human insight will not be able to explain it. Listen, you need to grab hold of this, mom and dad. Because you've planted, well, how's the word described in First Peter? The imperishable seed. And you've sown and sown into your children. And you can't force that seed to pop open in your child's life. All you can do is pray for the seed and pray for rain. And so hang on, mom and dad. You don't know how it's going to happen. <clears throat> happen. Plant the seed. Plant it often. And pray for God to cause it to bring forth fruit. And you that have shared the gospel with your friend and have given up hope because it seems nothing's taken place. Well, you don't know how it happens. Have you written a manual on the, the growth of a seed? Speaking spiritually, have you written a textbook to say how that seed will pop out? 
No, because you don't know. The seed grows by itself in the providence of God, of course. God's the one who causes it to open and bear fruit. And first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, as verse 28 says. And you that are Sunday school teachers, oh man, that kid in your class who just won't sit still. And you've shared the good news with your whole class, but you've prayed for him. And wow, wow. Uh, he's your own little Calvin in your class. Calvin as in Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Not John Calvin. <laughs> and you've given up and you think, wow, this kid is too far gone. But you don't know. It's an imperishable seed and, and God is the one in charge of how it grows. This is exactly what Paul spoke of. He uses language very similar to this. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so you keep right on sowing that seed teacher, Sunday school teacher, mom and dad, friend, you just don't know. Uh, the hidden things belong to God, as Deuteronomy says, 29, 29, I believe. Well, we see the growth of the seed. It's, it's, it's completely out of our hands, and we can't see it. Uh, it's God's doing. And then finally here, we see um, the harvest. And here's my mustard seed slide again, and it's just got to fit in this message somewhere because I've... <laughs> You've seen it twice now. I, I, let me confess, I was not very awake when I um, put this in my uh, presentation this morning, so I apologize. I think it might be even come in the next parable. Yeah, the parable of the mustard seed. It's coming. <laughs> But now that you've seen what a mustard seed looks like, there's no more need to show the slide, right? Anyway, so we come to the harvest in verse 29, which is uh, the third thing. Yeah, there's the good old mustard bush too. There we go, the harvest. You're trying to help me back there. All right, the harvest. Thank you, Spencer. Finally, we see the harvest in verse 29, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Putting the sickle uh, in for harvest is an image that in other places symbolizes the arrival of God's kingdom, uh, the final unveiling of God's kingdom at the return of Jesus, what I mentioned in our last characteristic. And this um, scholar describes it like this the metaphor of reaping is a common picture in the Old Testament of the end of the age it always involves the concept of judgment as well as salvation chaff and weeds are burnt wheat is saved uh, 
This is to be the final realization of the rule of God which has already begun in Jesus. And so we read about this harvest in other places in the Bible. Joel mentions it, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow for their evil is great. And then John the Baptist describing Jesus said his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Matthew 13, 30, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, let both grow together until the harvest and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then again, once more in Revelation 14, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. This is talking about the end of the age when Christ returns at just the right time. When the seed is fully ripe, Christ will return for the harvest, bringing salvation for those who are his and judgment for those who are not. This is what we see thirdly. So the second characteristic of God's kingdom is its gradual growth. And maybe we need to see this characteristic most of all because we can become so disheartened by the apparent lack of growth of God's kingdom. And many believers today think God's, think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And it may be. But let me tell you something. God's kingdom is not going backwards. It can't, according to this passage. It is growing. And it will continue to grow until Jesus comes. And go to bed uh, tonight with that thought in your mind. That Christ's kingdom is not retreating. It is advancing. We, might, we are probably dreadfully unaware of what God's word is doing in other parts of the world. We most, as most Americans, we usually are. Uh, that's why mission reports are so good. Uh, hearing from people like uh, we did last week, uh, whose name just flies out of my brain, Stan and Vicky Serbatovich, uh, or Serbatovich as some of us like to say. <laughs> uh, but it's great to hear uh, reports of what God does in other parts of the world because it lets us see, yes, in fact, his kingdom is growing. Well, this leaves us one final characteristic, and that is the complete conquest of his kingdom, which we've, I've hinted at a couple times, and we've already seen. But the third characteristic of God's kingdom is its complete con conquest. And, and while it begins very small, we might even see a picture of a mustard seed here coming up. While it begins in, in a very small way, one day it will encompass all things. And again, there are three things here I want to point out to you. It's insignificant beginning. And um, boy, look at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what, shall, what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Let me cross my fingers. Well, what do you know? <laughs> it's a picture of a mustard seed. 
and that is obviously a human finger right beneath it, and it is very, very small. But smaller seeds than this have been discovered. And this discovery has led to significant trouble for some people. In fact, Dr. Sproul tells the story of a New Testament professor, a seminary professor, who, when this was found out that botanists had discovered seeds smaller than the mustard seed, rejected the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, believed that the Bible contained a obvious and blatant error at this point. What he failed to recognize is that Jesus was not making a scientific statement. This is a, a proverbial saying. Uh, in the ancient world, if you wanted to describe something small, you say, oh, it's as small as a mustard seed. How small is it, someone would ask. Small as a mustard seed, he would reply. Do you mean it's less than a millimeter high? No, I mean it's really, really small. I don't know if it's less than a millimeter. And we do similar things uh, when we talk about how quiet something is. How quiet was it? Quiet as a church mouse. And I can say with some authority that church mice are not all that quiet. <laughs> because I've sat in my office and listened to their little feet scamper across the ceiling tiles. Finally, keep it down up there, will you? And our good deacons have taken care of all those. So there's no fear of any mice joining the service this morning. But all that to say, the kingdom of God has a really, really small and insignificant beginning, like a mustard seed. Its king was born in a stable and put in a feed trough. The king's followers weren't noblemen and wealthy landowners. They were fishermen and a tax collector, uh, a Roman collaborator, a Jewish nationalist. The king had no palace. He had nowhere to sleep, and so he slept at his friend's house, Peter. And the people who followed him weren't weren't wealthy, they were sick, poor, and possessed by demons. And, and then finally, the king of this kingdom was put to death like a criminal and killed with two other criminals. And you could not imagine a more insignificant beginning to a kingdom. But out of this insignificant beginning, it reaches an incomprehensible ending, as verse 32 indicates. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Uh, hopefully, uh, we see a picture of a mustard bush. That tiny little seed grows into something typically three meters tall, uh, large enough for birds to build nests in. This reference to birds here nesting is, is some see that as an indication of the mixed nature of God's kingdom, of Gentiles being included, being included in God's kingdom. 
it's, it's an image the Old Testament prophets, uh, again, sometimes would use. It's a hint of God's grace extended to all peoples. And the point Jesus seems to be making is that the kingdom of God, which had such an insignificant beginning, will one day encompass all kinds of people from all over the world. I, I love the way this man describes it. That which no one would imagine, or if one did, would, would seem utterly impossible, will in time loom inescapably before us. God's reign will not only be more real than the world can imagine, but it will also be larger and more encompassing. Out of the most insignificant beginnings, invisible to human eyes, God creates his mighty kingdom which embraces all the peoples of the world. Is that not incredible? Who would like to get in on that action? You talk about an enterprise worth becoming involved in. Talk about something to give your life to. Building that. That will last forever. Wouldn't that be awesome? To know that you spent your years contributing to the growth of something that will never fail. Instead of getting a gold watch after 25 years. This is its incomprehensible ending after starting so small. And then thirdly, I want you to notice the epilogue. Um, and this comes in verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And apparently it, it says Jesus told more parables than these. Uh, and these are only a small section of all the parables that he told. And we also learn here that through these parables, Jesus was testing those who were listening to him. And he was using parables to evaluate the spiritual responsiveness of his hearers. And in this way, to, to separate the wheat from the chaff, the, the wheat, to separate those who were truly hungry and thirsty for him and uh, from those who simply wanted to see his miracles. And the ability to hear this truth revealed that the Holy Spirit had given them eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is, this is the, the epilogue Mark presents to us. The third conquest of the kingdom is its complete conquest at the end of the age. So, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does is, what is his kingdom look like for you and me? Uh, how does it appear to us right now and in our passage, Jesus has, has used three parables to, to present three characteristics. And first he says, he describes its ultimate unveiling, that he did not come to remain hidden, but one day it will be clearly seen. 
And then second, he described the gradual growth of God's kingdom. It continues to grow until the final harvest. And then third, the complete conquest of this kingdom. It will take over everything. I mean, it will take over everything. That's amazing. It will take over everything. So let me try to make an application or two. To begin with, you need to enter this kingdom. You need to enter this kingdom. And you enter by turning away from whatever you're trusting in. Uh, all your good works and your church membership. And of course you need to turn away from your rebellion against God and the things you're doing that, that his word says not to do. And turn away from all that and turn to Christ and his payment for sin on the cross. Put your whole weight on that. That is what gives you entrance into the kingdom. And full forgiveness and cleansing and your guilt erased. You enter the kingdom that way, which is what we saw in the first half of chapter 4. But what of you who have entered that kingdom? I think a second application is, uh, the question is, whose kingdom are you building? I wonder if we woke up thinking about, am I building God's kingdom today? Because so often we're absorbed, completely absorbed in building our own. And we do that through a thing called a career or, I don't know, wealth, children. Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your kingdom or are you thinking about Christ's kingdom? What I do matters to build his kingdom. What I say to people can build his kingdom. How I live my life in front of people can build his kingdom. So whose kingdom are you building, friend? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then lastly, I want to want you to think about this from, uh, from eternity looking back in time. Well, you know, so I can't imagine, as I said earlier, I can't imagine a better way to invest your life than in building this kingdom and doing things that will add people to his kingdom and spending your energy on this kingdom that will last forever. And, and when we're in eternity and can look back to be grateful about how we spent our time versus mourning of, and, and feeling remorse for how we spent our time. There will be some degree of remorse, I'm sure, for all of us, but knowing that you have invested in something that is eternal, it's just priceless. So I encourage you to invest your life in something that will last forever. 
And that is the kingdom of God. Let's pray as we proceed to take the Lord's Supper. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, cause your word to bear fruit in our lives. This morning, cause it to be implanted and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold among us today. And may your kingdom, by your word, advance and move forward, even in this room. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.